Culture and society exert energy to create a shared or collective vision of what the good life is. If we are not careful, they will replace the vision of life that God had in mind for us when he created us. With apologies for those of you who are not Star Trek fans. The scariest episodes of Star Trek for me were always when the Borg showed up. I don't know if you know the Borg, but the Borg were these big square spaceships that went through the galaxy and everybody in them were like half robot, half human. And what made the Borg so frightening is that they didn't really interact with the people they were fighting against just to kill them off. Their goal was to capture all the citizens and to remake them in their own image. And so because they were half robot and half humans, everybody they captured, they would cut off body parts and put mechanical parts back on. And, and they had a, a hive collective in terms of their minds. So through computers, all of their minds in the whole nation were one mind gathered and ruled by one queen bee, so to speak. The Borg, frightening, frightening. And I've thought about who the Borg is, and the Borg is that symbol of people who know what's best for everybody and impose it on them, right? The, 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 the fear, the, the scary part of the Borg is they already know what is best and they're going to impose it on everyone else, much like our culture and society are trying to do to us, to take their vision of what life ought to be and stamp it on the rest of us so that we can conform to what they think. What was the Borg's always uh, famous statement? Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. That's what the Borg said to everybody they encountered. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. I think sometimes we don't even know the extent to which we've already been assimilated. I don't think we're always that thoughtful about the influences of the culture and the society on us. I was talking to a gentleman named Seth, a pastor in our area, who was doing pastoral training and homiletics in China over the last six months. He told this story to us last week. He said when he was teaching these Chinese pastors how to interpret scripture. They would read passages from different parts of the gospel, different parts of the Bible, and when he would say to them, what do you think this means? They always had the same answer. They, every scripture in the Bible always boiled down to honor your father and your mother. Didn't matter if they were reading from Matthew or Ezekiel, didn't matter. What do you think this means? Well, it means we should honor our mother and our father. They got so bad that they finally had to say, after several classes of this, what does this scripture mean and you can't say honor your mother and father? Because that societal message was so deeply ingrained in them, they couldn't see past it to anything else. And they, they couldn't even make themselves available to the truth of scripture because the cultural message was so loud that the most important priority in all of our lives 
is to, well, maybe if John or Greg were here today, maybe we would rethink this. If my kids were around, maybe, maybe that would be the message I want to preach, but the gospel has more to say than that. And the vision of the kingdom of God is broader than anything our culture or society tries to tell us. When you take any small portion of scripture like that, because we know honor your mother and father are in the Ten Commandments, right? And we make that carry the whole weight of the vision of the kingdom of God, we're misusing scripture. You understand that, right? When, when honor your mother and father is the sum total of your message, and you say, well, it's biblical, You've misused scripture because the scripture says so much more than that. And if we're going to get a true picture of the kingdom of God, we're going to have to look at all of it. We're going to have to look widely and pull all these pieces together so that we really understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Here's one thing that Hebrews 12, 14 says. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. This is a beautiful verse that tells us again what citizens of the kingdom of God do. It describes the actions of citizens of the kingdom of God. They pursue peace and holiness. They avoid bitterness. But if what we're looking for are pictures of the kingdom, we have to remember that a passage as wonderfully beautiful as this is still just an external description of an internal state of mind. The thing we're trying to avoid is developing a set of actions we attempt to replicate externally without the internal transformation necessary to make those actions happen. So rather than start with a, a list of actions that tell us what the kingdom of God is like, let's talk about the values of the kingdom that have to be supported internally so that those actions flow naturally from who we are because our hearts have been transformed in Christ. Do you see the difference? We don't want to get a picture of the kingdom of God so that we can create a checklist and then try to do the checklist. We want to create a picture of the image of God so we can understand the values that gives rise to that picture and we become citizens who are comfortable in the kingdom because of the harmony between the kingdom's values and our values which leads to appropriate actions. There's a difference between the two. Matthew tells us that the kingdom of God is without price. So valuable, it's worth the divestment of a person's entire fortune in order to acquire. In other words, nothing that I have is more valuable than my citizenship in the kingdom of God. It deserves my ultimate energy, my earnest pursuit, my complete devotion. Matthew also tells us the kingdom of God is like a net cast so wide so that many, so that everyone can enter. However, only those who pursue in righteousness are permitted to stay. The minute Matthew tells us it's like a net, 
He says, all the fish that come in, well, the fisherman doesn't keep them all. It's those who pursue the values of the kingdom that stay in the kingdom. Matthew tells us in terms of its action, the kingdom is like yeast in bread dough. It only takes a little to change the consistency of everything because the kingdom finds ways of breaking out, of changing the nature of things, of making things better. And the kingdom has very specific values. We're told that natural enemies here on earth live together in peace in the kingdom of heaven. Predators and prey alike submit to the authority of the kingdom because this is a peaceable kingdom. The wolf lies down with the lamb, Isaiah tells us. The kingdom of God is a place of health where all dwell together as children, where all live in safety, where disabilities are removed or rendered meaningless and wholeness is the norm for all. The kingdom of God is not a place of striving. Gentleness is the methodology of the kingdom of God. God will actively meet the needs of his people there. His will is done in the kingdom of heaven. Wherever God's will is done, there is the kingdom. So what kind of mental pictures do you draw from words like these that will help you get a firm picture in your mind of what the values of the kingdom are, a firm picture towards which you can walk. And I think, I think this picture is probably the very first thing that we need. How do you fashion a picture of what life in the kingdom looks like, the values that are embraced or ought to be embraced by the children of God? And I think you start with the gospels. I mean, the gospels show us very particularly how Jesus lived. His life is the example of life in the kingdom of God. So we need a placeholder, a picture, so that we understand where we're headed. But as I've been trying to develop that this week, I have to confess that most often what I get is the picture of the difference between who I am and what that picture looks like. I wish I, wish I could say that I could just paint that picture of the kingdom of God before me and march towards it. But I inevitably am sidetracked by the dissonance in my life. And I'm not sure that's all bad. If I know where the dissonance is, if I know where I'm living less than a child of God, I know where to ask God to help me change, to be different. I have to confess my natural tendency is to be loud, forceful, and coercive in order to get my own way. I want to demonstrate verbally that I am correct. I want others to verify that they understand how correct I am. I try to keep this particular picture in mind from Scripture when I'm tempted to think in that direction. These prophetic words of Isaiah that are describing Jesus in the Gospels. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering flax he will not extinguish. Now that's not a, a complete picture of the kingdom of God, but it's a picture that I need 
It's a picture that articulates the difference between who I tend to be and who I want to be. And if I can keep that picture before me, that partial picture of the kingdom that says, well, that passage also says, he's not going to raise his voice or yell in the street. Okay? I feel like I do that sometimes, raise my voice and yell in the street. I feel like some folks don't get it. I just want to say, get it. But that's like completely opposite of the methodology of the kingdom, right? He's careful to preserve whatever spark of faith there is. He's the nurturer, the encourager, the gentle shepherd. And so I need that picture of life in the kingdom in my head because it provides a corrective to temptation in me. Gentleness, humility, a sensitivity to the weakness of others, these are things I want to grow in me. For those who tend to be violent or angry, argumentative perhaps, you might need a picture of a wolf lying down with a lamb, the symbol that there is no violence in the kingdom of God. It is a peaceful kingdom, and the members of the kingdom do not violence one another. Perhaps you are very weak, suffering, and hopeless. Maybe the chaos of our times has left you despondent. It may be that the image of the kingdom you need is the picture of the unshakable kingdom, the angel hosts in loud praise, the banners waving, the obvious reign of God as it occurs in heaven and will one day be expressed on earth. Perhaps you are confused, lost, not sure which way to go next. Perhaps the picture you need is the highway of holiness picture, where God is the strong guide of his people. So strong, the passage said, that even fools can't get lost. I take comfort in that. So strong is his ability to guide us. So when we're, when we're begging God to tell us what to do next, please understand it is not any lack of his ability to communicate with us that hinders us understanding his will. It's more likely our inability to get quiet long enough to listen. But even in that, he's able to guide us even if we're foolish about the whole thing. He is trustworthy. Perhaps you're lonely, depressed, and feeling unloved. The image you may want in your head is the image of a kingly father who dances over you with joy in his heart, who sees you as his delight, who invites you to understand those around you in the same light that he sees you. The kingdom of God is all of these things and much, much more. For a comprehensive picture of the kingdom, you need all the scriptures on that sheet and then more because this is a very varied and almost a kaleidoscope of images that come together to perform the richness of the vision we need of the kingdom of God. And once we have the image, once we understand what it really is that God wants us to embrace, once we understand the kind of kingdom he wants us to live in, the second question is, do we intend to live in the truth of that? I mean, seeing the picture is one thing, the second question is, do we care? Or do we intend? Will we give ourselves to the pursuit of this? Or are we going to pursue some other vision or view of the world or some other view of comfort or some other view of the pursuit of the American dream or some other thing that has attempted to supplant our vision 
of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Do we intend? Once we've stated our intentions, the last thing I have to understand is, do I have the means to act on my intentions? Right, because you, you know you can't always do what you want to do. You have to survey the landscape and see, is it possible? Do I have the opportunity? Do I have the means to carry out my intentions to live in the kingdom of God? I confess uh, this is the easiest sermon outline I've ever preached in my life. It's just three words. The vision of the kingdom of God, the intention to live in the kingdom of God, and the means available to live in the kingdom of God. Vision, intention, means. That's simple. Breaking the process of living, the king, living in the kingdom of God to really small steps may seem foolish. I mean, I've been preaching about the transformation of heart for weeks now. Uh, but I think it's in the small steps of this process that we hit the nitty gritty. I think I have to ask myself some questions about how I'm currently living and if my life choices are consistent or inconsistent with my intentions to live in the kingdom of God. I can't know if they're consistent or inconsistent until I have an accurate picture of life in the kingdom of God is. Once I have an accurate picture of life in the kingdom of God, then I can ask whether my intentions are resulting in actions that are consistent or inconsistent with living that life. If I have a wrong version of the kingdom, my self-assessment will be wrong and I'll never sort this out. If I don't know the goal, I'm always gonna answer, honor your mother and father. If I don't intend to do anything about the inconsistency between how I'm living and what my intentions are, then this whole conversation is worthless and a waste of time. If you don't intend to go there, well then, give it up, pack it up, be who you are, you be you, I'll be me, you live by your own truth, that's fine. I don't know if there's any stability in that, but that's essentially what you're saying if we're not willing to address the inconsistencies between how we're living, what our intentions are, and what the picture we're given is. At the same time, if you don't have the means to make any changes, if you don't believe the leopard can change his spots, then it doesn't really matter if you want to change or not, because change is impossible. Some folks think that all the choices we've already made have already been determined for us, and we fatally, according to fate, carry out the choices that have been predetermined for us. If everything's predetermined, you know, turn on the autopilot and go. Uh, but my sense is that we have real choices to make, and we really do have opportunities to act on those choices. And we know that change is possible because we've seen change. Some of us have experienced change. We know it's available and we have God's promise that says he'll complete the work in us, he's begun in us. And so we know change is possible. And most of us know the intention of our heart is to do better, otherwise God wouldn't have drawn us to this place today to begin with, right? We're here to hear from God because we want to do better and we want to 
engage him uh, and listen to the voice of the Spirit. So all I think that's really left for us is to honestly gaze at the picture of the kingdom of God that scripture gives us and inspect our lives for inconsistencies. And it is those very inconsistencies that I take to the Father and I ask for help. You were expecting me to say, develop a plan to do better, right? That's not what I said. I didn't say, come up with a three-point plan to address all the inconsistencies in your life. I say, acknowledge the inconsistencies and take them to the Father for help. And listen to what he has to say, because after all, it is a kingdom. I know we're not comfortable with the monarchy and all that stuff, but we're stuck in a kingdom and we should get comfortable with that. And it's his Holy Spirit who helps us understand how to move forward in spite of our best laid plans. And so we ask for help. We probably need to admit that there might be blind spots in our ability to see the inconsistencies in our own lives. So we probably need friends who can tell us the truth. We probably need silence before the Holy Spirit so that he can tell us the truth. Because we get so caught up in our opinion of our own intellect and our own designs and our own direction that we don't know our own blind spots. And if we're not humble enough to admit the possibility that they're there, how are we ever gonna move forward? So my vision of the kingdom of God matters. My intention to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God matters. And appropriating the means for transformation in the kingdom of God matters. Those are the first baby, baby steps. The right vision, the intention to live as a citizen, and taking the opportunity to change that were offered. So what, so what do those opportunities for change look like? What are the means of change? How do I recognize those opportunities when they come? I wish I could give you a more positive answer to this, but I think most of the opportunities in our lives are train wrecks. I mean, I think the miserable, awful, and frustrating, and aggravating, and irritating, and annoying things that happen to us, those are actually those opportunities. They're more than this, but these are often the prime ones, the ones that so deeply unsettle us, that, that drive us crazy, that move us to distraction. Those, those are the opportunities. The times that we've lost our temper, the times when we're out of patience, the times when we've been forsaken or betrayed or cursed or mistreated, when life isn't fair, those are precisely the times we reach out to God for strength, for insight, for the things that we need to live faithfully in the kingdom in the face of adversity. In the problems of life, we have the opportunity to appropriate the grace of God. And in the in-between times, when life isn't chaos, we do the heavy lifting of investigating the life of Jesus and the Gospels so that we can grow in grace and increase our understanding of what the kingdom is like. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like men and women wrestling with the junk of lives, the difficulties that we have, 
and trying to negotiate it based on the values of the kingdom of God. That's hard. It requires us to trust God to help us do that, and it requires us to ask for his ways of moving forward. We're, we're in a place in society right now where communication is really difficult. Social media has the, um, the effect of hardening our views, calcifying our views, rather than making us sensitive to the views of others. The national dialogue is more bitter and divisive than it has ever been. And if we think we're gonna advance the kingdom of God by aggressive, violent words, by shutting our ears to differences of opinion that don't reflect what we think is right, if we think there is a way forward that is anything less than gracious and compassionate and kind and thoughtful and loving, then we're missing the preeminent value of the kingdom of God. Remember the very first sermon of this series, the introduction? The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruitfulness of our lives is demonstrated in love, peace, joy, faithfulness, gentleness, all those fruits of the Spirit. That's the only way forward in the kingdom of God. It's the only way forward. And our society is moving us completely in the opposite direction, calling vice virtue. I mean, we're hopeless if we adopt the methodology of our culture thinking we'll advance the kingdom of God that way. Not gonna happen. However, if we will invite the Spirit to transform our hearts, to chip away at the tough parts, if we will cooperate with the heart transplant that he wants to do, trust him in the middle of the train wrecks of our lives, believe him for more than we can see, then we can know the transforming work of God in us and we can see his kingdom come. Every Sunday we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. What does that mean? It means let your kingdom come through me. Use me, Lord, to bring your kingdom according to the values and principles and methods of your kingdom. Your kingdom, your way. That's what we're after. And if there are inconsistencies between my vision and what the kingdom looks like for real, I have to invite him to help me sort that out. There's a hymn in the hymnal that we're not going to sing, but I want to read to you. We'd sing it, but we don't know it. The kingdom of God is justice and joy, for Jesus restores what sin would destroy. God's power and glory in Jesus we know, and here and hereafter the kingdom will grow. The kingdom of God is mercy and grace. The captives are freed, the sinners find place. 
The outcast are welcomed God's banquet to share, and hope is awakened in place of despair. The kingdom of God is challenge and choice. Believe the good news, repent and rejoice. His love for us sinners brought Christ to his cross, our crisis of judgment for gain or for loss. God's kingdom is come, the gift and the goal. In Jesus begun, in heaven made whole. The heirs of the kingdom shall answer his call, and all things cry glory to God, all in all. Justice and joy is the kingdom. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's our ultimate picture of what it means to give away myself for others. And so I would invite those who are going to assist me in leading us towards this time of receiving the body of blood of Christ to come at this time. And we'll prepare our hearts for this symbol of the kingdom and this token of the covenant of God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, gracious God, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. You revealed yourself through your people Israel, and in the fullness of time you sent your son Jesus, who took on flesh and became one of us. Jesus gave his life for us according to the plan of salvation. You raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. He is the King of the kingdom of God, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is our Alpha and Omega, our provider, our healer, our hope, and our light. He is the bread of life, the great shepherd, our brother, and he is worthy of our praise. And so we rejoice with all your people of every time and place, and with angels and archangels to proclaim the glory of your name. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us. Blessed Redeemer, living word. Jesus is our king. He has invited us into his kingdom. He will come again to receive us into the place he is preparing for all of his children. These things we call to mind as we take this spiritual food. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord.
Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this juice, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood. May your Spirit sanctify us that we might be one, united in mission, and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. Amen. I invite you to stand and come by the exterior portions of the aisle, receive the communion elements, and take them back with you to your seats. body of Christ, the bread of life. Let us take it with joy. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, may it preserve us blameless to everlasting life. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the life you lived among us so that we could see what life in the kingdom looks like. We thank you for your obedience to the Father and to the plan you conceived with him before the foundation of the earth. We're grateful for the day you took the towel and wrapped it around your waist and washed your disciples' feet as an example. But most grateful for the day you gave yourself for us that we might be reconciled to God and live as citizens of this kingdom. We bless your name. And we thank you humbly. Amen. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense my righteousness oh god how i need you i need you oh i need you every hour i need you my one defense my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. The temptation is to pronounce a benediction 
as a blessing, as a, as a self-fulfilling prophecy that you will take with you as you move into the world. And yet, as I've been thinking about this moment, it occurs to me that a coach's pep talk in the locker room before the game is more appropriate. We're not gonna huddle up. But I feel like I wanna say to you, baby steps. Day by day obedience. When it comes to the fruit of the Spirit and acting out love, do your job. And let's be the people of God He imagined we could be. Can we do that? Then break. Go in peace. <laughs>